The Athletic. F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Round Effect has been the talk of the Formula One paddock this year, with all 10 teams grappling with the new regulations. But the history of powerful underfloor Venturi tunnels in F1 started many decades ago. So we look back on that era with Gary and delve into how the lessons of that era are having to be learned anew in the 21st century. Welcome to another episode of the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. I'm Ed Straw and we're joined by the main man, Gary Anderson, former technical director of Jordan, Stewart and Jaguar, and whose F1 career stretches all the way back to the 1970s. Hello, Gary. How are you enjoying the August break? I'm good. Yeah, the August break's good. The sun's shining, which is quite amazing if it all happens at the same time. Normally it doesn't. Whenever you get a bit of a break, it uh, lashes it down. But uh, for some, obviously, it's a bit too hot, but um, it definitely makes a big, a big, big difference to this. It's a little bit of a holiday. So, I mean, all the teams have been enjoying it. Uh, the, the regulations state that they've got to shut down for two weeks during this three-week period. So um, it can be uh, one set of people that shut down and, and go home and the other set of people come in a bit earlier. So, so it, you probably would work that out as a, a one-week shutdown as such in, in a three-week period. But um, I'm sure we will see developments come the race in Spa. Um, obviously, there's a floor regulation change, which I'm looking forward to seeing the outcome of that. I'm not. I'm not sure it'll be a, a massive visual change to anybody, but it will. It will affect some more than others. So that's the interesting thing: who can react to it best. Yeah, we'll start to get a bit of a feel for that come Spa. So as usual, we'll start off by offering you, Gary, the chance to talk about anything from the world of F1 tech before we get into our main topic. F1 is on hiatus. What have you got for this week? Well, you know, it's it's, a, it's the thing that IT brings you an end result. It's the, the strategy. You know, risk day is the important day. That's the day that you get the points. And uh, It doesn't really matter how quick your car is or how slow your car is. If you can execute it well on a Sunday, you can usually do better than some people that don't execute it well. And and that happens all the way down through the field, to be honest. You know, the, the people further down would maybe take risks just to try and get something, um, you know, something out of it, as I've done in the past myself. But you weren't in a position, you know, of, of winning a race unless you did take a risk. That was your that was your gamble. So you bought into gambles. Um, but up at the front, you know, you have to really just dot the I's and cross the T's on strategy. And uh, no matter how, how good your plan is before the race starts, it will always be affected by by what's happening on that given day. And I think that's the thing that we're seeing with Ferrari. They're not they're not they don't have a living strategy uh, philosophy. Basically, they've got a plan and they're going to stick to that plan, which in the long term is hurting them, hurting them dramatically. And they've got to they've got to start step up and be counted for it. Really. Um, now, I'm not saying that Matteo Benotti is is the man responsible for that. I'm saying he is the the head of that program as far as it is concerned technically and um, team principle-wise. And I said at the beginning of that, that's too big a job for anybody. If he does fail uh, at winning this championship, I don't think personally that he has failed. I think that Ferrari have put him in too big a position, too much management position to use his expertise so from my point of view he's not the guy that's responsible um but it's it's one of those sort of situations where he he has a job what do you do he has to kind of do the best he can so he's obviously relying a lot of people around him but without the the 
the uh, the time and and uh, I don't know expertise I suppose to really get his fingers burnt by looking at it closely. And uh, as I say, the the speed of the car is one thing, which we obviously know the Ferrari is is very quick on a Saturday. But come Sunday, they've thrown away some races this year because they they never really bought into the fact that the Red Bull was was a faster car on the straights. And that as long as uh, Verstappen can hang on to the back of a faster lap time car in the Ferrari, then he would be able to overtake it. They never really bought into that fact. Um, but the, the car has improved as far as that's concerned. But they never really bought that as a, as, a, as a reason for actually losing races. But then comes the strategy situation that we had with Monaco and, you know, we had Silverstone and, and um, we just had Hungary. And in reality, you know, once, yes, okay, you can, you can live with it. Twice, you just got to take more notice of it, and three times is, is really wrong. So I think they need to sort of wake up their strategy department, and they need to stop having this big plan that they're going to stick to. They need to really have it as a living thing. There's 20 cars out there running. They're all running you know, potentially different tyres, but not necessarily, but for different reasons. A lot of cars are on different tyres. You should take notice of everything that's going on, um, every car input you can. Because that's all you've got. Come race day, when the when the lights go out, from there on in, you just got to react to the situation. And um, I think they're very, very poor at reacting to that situation. And from my point of view, that's something that they have to address. And it's you know it's even more important than finding an extra tenth of a second from the car. You know you can throw it all away in a pit stop so easily, and they've managed to do that. Obviously. We don't know exactly what's going on behind closed doors, but publicly, Mattia Bonotto has always batted away suggestion of things needing to change. He said after the Hungara ring that there's nothing to change. I think it's always a matter of confidence, learning, building, building experience, building skills. But if I look at the balance of the first half of the season, there's no reason why we should change. What do you make of that, Gary? Obviously, exactly what he means by change when he's asked about this, we have to be a little bit wary of because it could mean he could be interpreting it as needing personnel change rather than systemic change. But to me, it feels a little bit too much just denying that there's anything that needs to be fixed. Yes, it is. And, I, and that's really what I'm, I'm saying. You know, at the end of the day, you've got to have open eyes for all of this. Um, and, you know, if I relate that to strategy, you've got to have open eyes as to what's going on around you and react to that, to that strategy situation. And now this is just moving it from a Sunday afternoon strategy to a company strategy. And Mario, uh, Matteo Bonato is, is saying the same thing. You know, he's saying we don't have to change anything. Well, you do have to change it on a Sunday afternoon if you're going to win more races and score more points. And you do have to change it as an overall strategy for the company because it's, the, it's that part that's letting you down. Um, so make the car a tenth of a second faster, waste a 20-second pit stop, what, what's the point you know it's it, it is about accepting and seeing what's in front of you and Matteo must be he must be blind if he if he doesn't see that if he doesn't see the fact that they need to alter the way they're going about stuff um just exactly the same as they need to alter the way they're going about their their, uh, their pit stop calls you know so it's the same deal you, you've got to recognize and see what's in front of you and what's happening and to you know genu- genuinely put on blinkers and say there's nothing wrong I think that's that's really it could cost him his job. I hope it doesn't because he's a very, very clever guy and he's a very much a Ferrari man, 100% Ferrari. So, but at the end of the day, you know, everybody has to be to stand up and be counted. I know if it was me and the teams that I've worked for, I would be getting hauled over the coals uh, dramatically, whether I would 
you know, keep my job or not, hopefully I would, but I'd be getting holed over the coals dramatically if I'd made those mistakes within a front-running team. So he needs to wake up, open his eyes, take the blinkers off, look at some of the races, the strategy calls. You know, they're all on TV. You can you can watch them all. You can see them all again. And then just look at his own structure, company, the way they run it, and just see where they, uh, they need to alter that now to get rid of those problems on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah, the hungry one was the most grating, I think, with putting the hards on when everybody knew they were a problem. They did have a choice to do things differently. So that, that was kind of the nadir, probably, you would say, even though he's right in his defence that the car pace in the race wasn't stunning, but they certainly didn't play that race as well as they should have done. Four wins in 13 races for what's been the fastest car, clearly not good enough. Well, as, we, you know, as we've seen in Hungary on many, many occasions, it's not necessarily the fastest car that wins. So, you know, if you're in the ballpark performance-wise and you've got a fairly decent set of wide elbows, you can win in Hungary with a car that's, you know, a lot off the pace relative to somebody that's trying to pass you. So that's not a good enough excuse. You know, that really isn't a good enough excuse. And that's what I'm saying. It's not just about the car performance. It's, um, it's about more than that. And they need to look deeply at it. Yeah, exactly. And it's a very strange decision to cover Verstappen with Leclerc and put him on tyres that made him a sitting duck to be passed. That didn't make a great deal of sense, but we don't want to get too much into that particular decision. Again. Let's move on to our main topic now, Gary. The return of ground effect, serious ground effect cars, we should say, because ground effect's never really gone away. But that's been the big tech story of 2022. You were around in Formula One when it first appeared in the late 1970s, and it was a voyage of discovery then, learning how to harness ground effect, just as it has been this year. Is it worth starting off by looking back at those times and the learning curve that everyone was going through trying to get the car working? Obviously, it was it was Lotus that really started it all with, actually, initially, the Lotus 78 of 1977, which no one really noticed, and then the Lotus 79 of the following year that was just all-conquering. Yeah, I mean, it, it was back then. Uh, again, as you say, ground effect has been around from, from the, the, a long, long time. Any Anything that uh, travels near the ground and uh, travels at speed will will generate a force. And uh, ground effects about making that force work for you, you know, sucking the car down, down towards the ground. Um, the thing is that you've got two surfaces. There's one on the car, which is passing through the airflow. And then there's, there's also the ground itself, which is sitting stationary to the to the airflow so it's a quite a it's quite a harsh environment it's a bit like a venturi but it's one side of it's sitting stationary and one side of it's traveling through the air which in theory is stationary as well but um the ground effect and the diffuser and the tunnels in those days and now it, it's all basically about um making sure you disturb the air as little as possible the diffuser itself is trying to increase the airspeed that's going underneath the, the throat of the car making it travel faster, which makes it thinner, which makes it suck the car down to the ground. And if you didn't have that diffuser there, what happens is the car pushes that airflow along in front of it. So the the, the car speed relative to the airspeed is, is reduced dramatically, so the downforce is reduced dramatically. So it's all about trying to make sure that the, you get the airflow underneath the car. And we've seen this year, obviously, some teams with porpoising. Um, and it's it's really because of the, the way the ceiling system is. You know, we'll go back to the, to the Lotus 78, um, you know, whenever it first came came into to operation, it had uh, brushes down the side of the of the cars as as skirts to try and stop the leakage, uh, which is really good because it kept the track quite clean as well. But um, 
you know, the brushes were the flexible part of it, and then it developed, and then suddenly sliding skirts became a big thing, and um, you know, the sliding skirts got really sophisticated with ceramic rubbing strips and lots and lots of stuff. So they all they were fantastic when they worked. They were fantastic, but if a driver clipped a curb or hit a bump wrong or whatever, you know, damaged the skirt and it stuck up and he didn't know about it, then the next corner, you know, you had a massive loss of downforce, and that was where sliding skirts really got banned. Um, and then went through the era of double suspensions, hydraulic suspension, all that sort of stuff. And, and we got really to, I suppose, the the latter um, 70s, whenever uh, downforce was becoming the prominent the prominent thing. And obviously then we got the, the Brabham Fan Car, which came out in, in competition to, to ground effect. And, uh, and the good thing about it was the fact that you could, you could generate the, the grip from underneath the car in low speed corners, you know, whereas a ground effect car and a, you know wings on a car, or whatever, it's all about the uh, the speed you're travelling at. Downforce should be just you know roughly at the square of the speed you're travelling at. So double the speed four times the downforce. Whereas with a fan car, you can work it really hard in the low speed corners and um, and back it off in the high speed corners. So it was something that was um, really gaining you a lot of a lot of performance because you spend a lot of time in low speed corners. And low speed corners is where you, you you know you overtake where you try to overtake because you can. High speed corners is one sort of racing line and that's it. So it's very difficult in high speed corners to pass anything. And low speed corners is a great opportunity. And the Brabham fan car, you know, obviously for one race showed that that was uh, that that was possible. Yeah, stunningly fast car. The drivers are even told not to rev it too much in the pit lane or leaving the pits because obviously it would just get sucked to the ground and everyone would realise just how powerful it was. But it's an interesting, really it's a technical cul-de-sac, isn't it? Because fans on cars have generally been banned. There's a Chaparral 2J of 1970 that was a fan car, but that was independently motored and that was banned by Can-Am. So the idea of a fan had been hit upon before, but it was all about convincing the powers that be that its primary purpose was cooling wasn't it that was the the clever loophole and there had been a rule change that made that acceptable so if you could say actually this is doing this amount of cooling the arrow effect was was secondary the the so-called primary purposing so quite an ingenious interpretation probably one of the first times that it that we saw something in f1 that was based purely on quite a clever interpretation of the rules yeah it was um it's a long story, really, I suppose you might say, about the, the Brabham fan car. I was fractionally involved in it right at the beginning, I suppose you might say. But um, going through what, what happened, uh, they, that that car, that Brabham car, was actually designed initially with slab cooling on the sides of the car. It's a, a sort of V-shaped chassis, upside-down V-shaped chassis, as Gordon's cars were in those days. Uh, it had the flat 12 Alfa Romeo engine. Um and it basically had large radiators on the side of the car, um, more like a radiator, you know, a sort of house radiator, just a big slab. It had airflow on the inside and the outside of it. But initial testing showed that it, it really didn't have the cooling capacity. Um, so it was changed, um, new nose and radiators put in front of it initially to, to make it cool. Um, and it was used initially like that. And then that's whenever the, the fan car part of it came along and basically the, the, the water radiator was moved to sat on top of the engine basically bit, you know nothing's new it's a bit like the cars these days the current cars with all their hybrid stuff have lots of radiators on top of the engine but the um the the, the Brabham with the, with the um, 
flat 12 Alfa Romeo was the it was the last thing you'd ever want as a ground effect last type of engine spec you'd ever want if you were trying to build a ground effect car because the engine and the exhaust pipes were underneath the engine so everything was just full up down there there was no um there was no room for a tunnel of any sort and the engine itself bending stiffness was not great so the the chassis went down the sides of the engine and sort of held held onto the back of the heads of the engine as well so everything was packed solid inside the rear wheels so there was really no room for a tunnel and that's why the fan car sort of really became something that was critical for that, that period in time. Unfortunately, it only did the Swedish Grand Prix, which it won. Um, but it was a, it was a you know great and novel idea, I think you must say, to to combat ground effect that was coming. And if it had been allowed to happen, uh, if it had been allowed to continue, I suppose you might say, you know, I think you would have seen um, ground effect cars with fans on them as well. So you could use the fan in the low-speed corners and, and use the ground effect in the high-speed corners because you don't get anything for nothing. The fan uses horsepower. Um, so it's one of those sort of situations where it's the same as, as, as the tunnels. The tunnels generate drag. So you have a drag number against a horsepower number and the two of them need to balance each other out. I think the, the Brabham was something like 30 horsepower they used up for their fan. And you can very easily use 30 horsepower up with a diffuser difference creating downforce so it gives you that that extra drag so you know as i say you don't get nothing for nothing it's the energy you're you're generating to hold the car onto the ground takes an input energy to get an output energy so uh, at the end of the day it was a great idea and it worked really well for for Bradham. yeah it's a a great example of this isn't it the the one win for Nicky Lauda at Anderstorp in in 78 the fan car was banned for 79 it wasn't technically banned in the final part of 78 but I think Bernie Eccleston realized it was wise not to field it he obviously had grander ambitions than just being a a team owner in F1 but it's interesting to imagine as you were just touching on there what would have happened if this sort of technology became ubiquitous fan cars have been very very occasional things that have, have cropped up but the amount of downforce that could be generated, as you suggested, with a, a ground effect aero car plus fan would have been pretty alarming for drivers at a, a time when we're not far off the loads being problematic for for them. So an interesting direction of travel that they could have been. But I guess it was always likely that, that such mechanical aero devices would have to be outlawed just because of how much they could have delivered. Yes, it was the right time. Um, the, the thing is, you know, we go back to that era and we look at innovation and the fact that, you know, a small team could go about doing something like that is is the pat on the back, I have to say. You know, that's what's, that's what's wrong now. Yes, for sure. Every set of regulations has its own area of innovation available to you. And we've seen it this year with the differences in, in using airflow, vortex generation you know how you how you define how the car works that's all innovation as to make that stuff work but you, you know back then that innovation was just just came in a bigger box you could uh, you could do more and you know just Colin Chapman in the ground effect cars Gordon Murray and his and his fan car uh, you know the Tyrrell six-wheeler all of that stuff was there to be done you know again Colin Chapman the twin chassis um for good or bad, you know, let's forget about the fact whether it's good or whether it's bad. It just, there was a bit availability for the, for teams and for clever people to actually head off in a direction to do something different. And uh, 
as with a fan car it worked, as with Chapman's ground effect solution it worked, but there's lots of other ones that didn't. So you've got to sort of um, take them in the chin and sort of say, okay, well, we had a good time doing it, and what did we learn about it, and where do we go from here? So it's one of those sort of situations where innovation to to that level has been stifled dramatically over the years, but um, but it's still there. You still you still have to be very innovative to actually build a car that, that can that can win. And um, so it's not it's not gone away by any means, but it's just filtered down to whatever you're talking about back then finding, you know, maybe probably half a second, maybe even a second from innovation, um, a lap time. Now it's down to, you know, at the maximum a tenth of a second, probably a hundredth of a second, that same innovation. So the return is dramatically reduced. Um, but it's still there, so you still have to do it right. I like the fact that when the fan car appeared at Anderstorp, they put dustbin lids over the back to, to cover it. You probably saw them in the pit later at the time. I wouldn't be surprised then. So I like the fact there's some low-tech hiding of it. Did, did you see the, the recent uh, fan car at Goodwood, the McMurtry Spearling, that broke the, the Goodwood Hill climb record? They claim something in the region of 2,000 kilos of instant downforce from, from that fan. So I guess that's the modern iteration of it, isn't it? Yes, I mean that's uh, it's massive. That's that's sort of the numbers of of downforce that the ground effect current F one ground effect car produces at high speed. Um, so it's you know it, it, again, it's where it would have gone to as you said earlier, Ed. The fact that you you know innovation, if it had been allowed to continue, would have been dramatically um, the performance would have been dramatically increased. But is, is it wrong or is it right? I don't. I'm not sure what's right. I mean, we've got Gordon Murray's designing a new road car at the moment that's got a fan on it, which is obviously something that, you know, is his heritage, I suppose you might call it. It'll be interesting to see. Um, I'm sure it will have uh, some better filter system on it from the uh, from the, the, the Brabham fan car because it, it did fire stones and stuff at the guy behind it. So that's uh, it wasn't an incentive to sort of follow very closely. But obviously his new road car with a fan on the back will... Uh, shouldn't really be doing that or else your Lamborghini that might be following it might just get a few stone chips so um obviously technology's moved on and and it will be a, a tidier version of it but it's still there and the, you know the whole thing hasn't gone away you know every car in the world has a, a cooling system that's operated by a fan of some sort and where that fan gets airflow from it um reduces reduces the, the drag on the car and a road car makes it more efficient you know gets the the uh, drag coefficient lower so Innovation leads to some sorts of things, and and the fan car, the fan, the Brabham fan car was was one of those cars that you know that did, as was the Chaparral, the Canam car. I mean, it, it led to regulation changes, I suppose. It tried to contain, limit, um, reduce the opportunity for innovation that a team might find. You know, one day can cost others a lot of money. And that's really where, if you take engines, that's why the engine specs have changed. From, you know, you used to have to, you could have anything you wanted. You know, we had days when we had flat 12s, V12s, V8s, uh, turbochargers all came along. If you got it wrong, you know, you had to change. You, it, would take you, it would take quite a lot of money to do that. So the, the changes in regulations was also about trying to limit the fact of not getting it wrong, I suppose you might call it. Just making sure everybody was going down a very similar path at least. So, uh, you know, if you built a car with a twin fans, twin ground effect tunnels, and, and somebody else built one with it, which is some other magic solution, um, and one of the two was wrong, it would just cost lots and lots of money to recover from that situation. 
And during that period, that team would struggle. Struggle for sponsorship, struggle for competitiveness, struggle for everything. So it didn't do the formula any good. So I think it needed to be boxed in a little bit. Um, but sometimes you can box it in just a little bit too much. Well, coming back to what you're saying about boxing things in too much, the return of ground effect this year has been under massively prescriptive regulations. All those things you talked about earlier, about the ways you could try and control the ground effect, the innovations you could bring in, have pretty much been closed off. So we've ended up with this curious battle this year where, Mercedes being the case in point, if you can get the car running low enough and the ride's okay, you've got tremendously high downforce figures, but it's very, very difficult to do that because there's so many restrictions on suspension. Inerters were banned this year, obviously. Interconnected suspension systems have been gradually cracked down on over the past eight or nine years, really. So it's a slightly different type of ground effect, isn't it, where the downforce is there, but it's it's setting your objectives realistically to where you can control the car at that level when you're not going to get yourself into porpoising or bouncing or all these other problems we've seen teams battling. Yeah, the challenge has changed um, a fair amount, to be honest, because, you know, at the end of the day, the only reason you can see high downforce figures is because you can seal the sides of the uh, of the underfloor um, and contain that low pressure underneath the car. And the way you can conceal the sides of the uh, underfloor is through a mechanical seal get get the sides of the car near the ground when you do that last five millimeters ten millimeters is like a huge switch so suddenly you get massive amount more downforce um which leads to the porpoising because it sucks the car down to the ground um somewhere in the in the underfloor the 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 flow stalls it reduces the downforce the car comes up then it starts working again it comes back down some teams have cleverly used airflow um vortex generation or basically the airflow around the rear tire uh the suction from the sort of squirt area of the tire where the tires are rotating onto the ground to pull airflow through underneath that flat foot area which means that you know it's not a mechanical seal it's it's a progressive seal so it's not like a light switch going on and off um and uh, so it's a different discipline altogether because the problem is in a wind tunnel, you know, the car is stationary. You move it through a very high, you know, a lot of, lot of ride height changes and rake and, 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 as I say, ride height. But at each point, the car is stationary. The car isn't, you know, elastically mounted on springs or anything. It's, it's stationary. Uh, and the one thing about wind tunnel as well is you can't put it near the ground, you know, because if it touches the ground, the, the, the belt and the wind tunnel, you just destroy the model, you destroy the wind tunnel, so you do a lot of damage. So the car always has to stay away from the ground by that bit. So if you plot out the last five millimetres of movement, let's say you can do with the ride height, um, and you get a, a graph of the downforce production, it will increase dramatically. And you've got to assume then that's going to continue. Um, so from there on in, you've got, you know, you've got a problem. Now, it may be possible in the wind tunnel these days. I know I would be looking at it as to to have a, a flexible skirt on the side of the car. That's completely different from what you can do in the real the real world. But if you had a flexible type skirt on the side of the car, where you, you know you could drop onto the belt, and the fle- and the skirt would just flex and 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 rub on the belt, it will change the loads. But if you have it rubbing all the time, then the, the load the delta on the load would would be uh, 
the same. You just look at that number, and if you lost X kilograms of downforce when it's touching the ground as opposed to when it's not touching the ground, you know that's the offset through the whole ride height range. And then you see about the reaction to the fact that it's mechanically sealed against non-mechanically sealed. So you've got to experiment quite a bit to sort of find a solution to not being able to um, research it because there is there is there has to be ways there has to be ways of getting a, an, a, an idea a picture of it so i don't think it's impossible but it's because of wind tunnel restrictions now you know it's all leading to the fact that you're you know you have to be very 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 clever and you have to have a bit of lateral thinking on the way and uh, i think some teams were not seeing that worse to be honest you know up to up to this year um red bull have set the standard i suppose you might call it as far as uh, rake on the car is concerned and whenever you put rake on the car the rear right height higher than the front by a long way you have to use some vortex generation to help seal the underfloor and so Red Bull have sort of been masters of that on the way um, and Mercedes ran a very low rate car so they didn't have to bother with that because that's you know there wasn't the benefit from it um, so at the end of the day you know Red Bull spent two or three years learning about something that suddenly the new regulations can make use of and Mercedes spent two or three years being very successful and not learning anything about it and now this year when it's very very important to the concept of the car they they don't have that database to sort of fall back on so time will tell you know who comes out on top at the end of the day um, Mercedes are getting closer just they are getting a little bit better just um, but it'll be interesting to see the this last this last part of the season. Nine races to go yet, still still a long way, and uh, I'm sure Mercedes will get into that that battle at the front uh, more often. And getting your crystal ball out, how big do you expect the changes next year to be? Every team's had this tremendous experiment running all year. They've all done a lot of investigation into how things are working. They'll have better ideas for how to mitigate the problems with suspension, etc. Do you think we'll see some major shifts in the way teams? approach things and can that therefore unlock some pretty big performance gains for the the second year of these regulations well i think the uh, i mean if if um, i understand correctly if what they're talking about goes through which is raising the sides of the car um by they talked about 25 millimeters um i'm not sure you need as much as that but you know a number as it stands they've said they've now got an agreement but it's got to go to the world motorsport council so i'm not sure if they'll have slightly reduced that because that's what a lot of teams were pushing for some change but not as much as 25 mil higher but certainly there's going to be something at the moment i believe and this is me because the regulations are quite tough to actually read and get a an impression in your in your head without actually drawing it all out i believe the sides of the car are 10 millimeters higher currently than the reference plane and then you've got a 10 millimeter plank. So in effect, the sides of the car are theoretically 20 millimeters off the ground. Um, that is the current set of regulations now. Whenever you imagine that, you know, with a bit of body flex, with a, all sorts of stuff, you can overcome quite a bit of that. Uh, also in the middle of a corner with a roll, you know, the outside floor of the car will be very close to the ground. Uh, could be out. I could be out there by ten millimeters. I'm not. I'm not quite sure. Hundred percent sure, but I could be out there by that. So, in my book, anyway, if that's correct, you know, um, the same again, um, the same twenty millimeters or something would make a massive difference. And uh, it will lose downforce from the underfloor, but it will improve the underfloor's consistency. So I don't. You know, I, I'm not seeing it as a big game changer. 
what I am seeing as an equalizer in its own little way, because the teams that that, that have a good understanding currently um, of how to overcome it won't won't have that understanding. It won't do them any harm because they don't need that understanding anymore. Whereas the teams that don't have a good understanding of it won't need that understanding anymore. So they'll they'll benefit. You know, they'll they'll benefit a bit because they can create a bit more raw down force from the underfloor without having this porpoising pop up pop up. So I do see it as if we, if we just take these top three teams that we've got at the minute, I do see it as an advantage for Mercedes in the fact that it will help them with their lack of understanding of how to get airflow to, to work as a seal on the side pod. But I don't see it as doing any harm to Ferrari and uh, and Red Bull. So as again, it's the old philosophy, you know, we want the grid to be tighter. We want more more of the smaller the other teams challenging. I'm not including Mercedes in the smaller team by any means. But I'm just saying that there's there's room for to think that Mercedes will come forward with it. As as is there room to think that Alpine and, and Alpha Tori and all the rest will come forward a bit with it. But that doesn't that's not because Red Bull and Ferrari will go backwards. It's just because they don't need that understanding anymore. So that height change on the side of the floor floor for me is a good thing, be it 10 millimeters, 15 millimeters, or then 25. It doesn't really matter to me. But any change there will be of will be of assistance to the smaller teams. The throat change they talk about, which is the lowest part of the of the underfloor in the in the tunnel area. Personally, I don't believe that will make a massive difference. It will reduce downforce. Um, so that means it will be less uh, instability in the diffuser area itself or in the underfloor and diffuser area. So, yes, but it's just a thing. I don't think it will make a big difference there. My big change would be the the uh, the floor of the car, the outside part of the floor that we see from the, from the outside world, especially the sort of the meter in front of the rear tire that's for me is a critical area yeah and that's certainly the bit that the teams who are objecting to these changes have focused on in terms of the impact it will have and they've talked about all sorts of changes and it might require monocoque changes and of course some teams might be considering carrying over the monocoque because there's various things you can carry over as part of cost caps etc but of course that's all the politics of it isn't it yeah I, th- I think you'll always get that argument and that's rubbish um you know for sure uh, it, it shouldn't change the monocoque of the car, and very easily, um, you know, they can put in something to say that it, you know you can't change the monocoque of the car in the underfloor area. You know, you have to keep it the same geometry as what you got now, or something like that. You can change the rest of the monocoque if you want to, but you know, the teams will always argue that same solution. If we wanted to change the monocoque, now we can't because of the regulations. That's absolute rubbish in my book. The, the whole objective is that you, you could, you, for the next race, you know, uh, during the summer break, if you'd said to the teams, right, we're going to raise this and, and, and you know, made it mandatory, you said to the teams, you've got to raise this one metre in front of the rear tyre up by 10 millimetres, 15 millimetres, or whatever. Um, you got to do it. You know, they would have done it. They wouldn't have changed the monocoque. They'd have done nothing else. They'd have raised that section of the floor up. They'd have gone to Spa, and guess what? The competitive order would probably just have been about the same. You know, there'd be no massive difference in it. So at the end of the day, it's just about the tool you've got, the car you've got, get the best out of it on a given weekend. And if that moves up by 10 millimetres or 20 millimetres, so be it. You'll still do it. You don't, it doesn't have to get to this level of, of stupidity where you know, somebody will find reasons for not doing anything. 
Well, there's no lack of that sort of thing when it comes to the politics of Formula One. So I imagine they'll continue to talk rubbish about it for ever more. Well, if you're listening to this podcast, you must recognise the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in Formula One, we'd love for you to send us a question. If you're lucky, we might answer it on a future episode. You can record a voice note on your phone and send it to podcasts at therace.com. That's podcasts at therace.com, and there's a hyphen in the race. And remember to tell us who you are. You can also send one in by email. This week's question is from Dan Blight, who asks, can any midfield team ever hope to make up that gap to the front over the current regulation cycle? Now, Gary, we're expecting the next rule cycle in 2026, primarily built around the new power units, but there will also be changes to cars. So that gives us, what, three and a half seasons for this? Is that enough time for some of these midfielders to bother the top three? I think bothering the top three is very difficult. I, you know, I think I think closing the gap is an important thing. Now, the cost cap, you know, we all we all hear a lot about it, but in reality, it's it's still in its infancy as far as of, of having an effect. Uh, I think we need to see another the rest of this year for sure um, come into play and see how the arguments unfold as to the placing of the cost cap and how it affects the bigger teams against the smaller teams. You know. If you take from the, the back half of the grid, team-wise, uh, there's very few of them are actually really operating to the cost cap. You know, None of them have a budget that big. So in effect, it, it has no real influence on them. It has a major influence from the mid, middle of the grid upwards because they have to find solutions to, to work more efficiently. Um, so there will be an influence from that, and that will take time to settle down. The regulations themselves, I think with this, as I said earlier there, just with this uh, floor shape being raised and our floor edge being raised, then I believe that will help you know, have more benefit for the teams, the, the, the smaller teams, than for the bigger teams. Um, so I do see that as a closing up process. And again, it's the same, same old deal. Um, take the Aston Martin rear wing assembly uh, with its end plate you know, up above the, the wing. Those are the sort of things that will pop up out of the grey areas of, of these regulations that either need to be addressed with the regulations or other people adapt to it. I'm not saying it was beneficial. I didn't, you know, the end result for Aston Martin in Hungary was not something that I saw as being a major step forward. Um, but it's something they've highlighted, an area there that you can look at. Now, it's never necessarily the first team that does it that actually gets the most benefit out of it. So I'm sure there's a lot of other people who will be looking very closely at different solutions in that area for to achieve different things um but there's lots of things in the regulations like that so whenever you're designing your new car for next year you will incorporate a lot of that knowledge from this year so i expect over these next few years of, of let's say stable regulations nothing's ever stable but you know stableish regulations that they we will see the field close up a bit more i think it's impressive that a new set of regulations can come in for 2022 and the teams still be so close because they are, you know, nigh on as close as they were the year before. So it's it's pretty impressive that they can all do the same job and, and, and get on top of them that quickly. So, but I still think they will close up a little bit. And it'll be sad whenever we get around 20, 2026 when things are going to change dramatically. Um, but you've got to make sure that you change them positively. Um, and that's the right thing. And from my point of view, obviously, the, the engine regulations are changing. Uh, with more electrical energy and less less fossil fuel usage, 
And I'm sure that's the right thing to do as far as that regulation is concerned. But it's not about reinventing the wheel. It's about working around what you've got and achieving that. And obviously we've got other car manufacturers, Porsche and Audi and whatever, talking about coming in. And that would be good to an extent for the formula, um, as long as they come in to be part of a team and didn't come in to revolutionise Formula One. Um, because we've seen manufacturers come and go in the past and um, the last thing you want to do is bring in some instability to, to some of the teams because you know the big guy sitting up on the desk in the, in, the, in the main office, he doesn't mind saying, you know, lock the door chaps, we're finished here. You know, that's, that's the problem. Whereas the small teams, a lot of the smaller teams are actually running a racing t- team as a business and it'd be sad to see them go just because some big manufacturer wanted to play for a few years. But for me, the regulations on the car... As far as the aerodynamic packages and that is concerned and the, the direction it's taking, it should continue um, 2026 and onwards. The only thing I would change is is the weight of the car. Um, and I think that has to come down because, you know, mass times energy is what gives you the performance. And the more mass you have, the more power you need. And the more power you need, the more wastage you've got. So you don't want wastage. Um so I think at the end of the day, I would I'd be looking at some solution to trying to get the weight of the cars down a bit, um, and that needs that needs very very careful thought. Um, one thing that jumps up to me is the wheelbase. It's you know three minimum of three point six meters. Why not make it three point four? You know, make the car shorter. Um, do the do the right things around it and make sure you you take a chunk of weight out of the car. Um, anyways, it could be the cars are you know they're big, they're huge, they're very wide. So a lot of these circuits like Monaco. Um, for example, you know, they're, the cars are too wide for there. Why not make it a little bit narrower? It's, it's just all going to contribute towards a slightly lighter car. And, I, and I'm saying slightly lighter. I mean, if you could lose 20 kilograms out of it, well, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a good thing. It's all positive. So uh, you just need to make sure that you end, up, you end up changing the rules in the right way, but not at the expense of all the research that you've done over the last few years just going in the bin. Um, so... I'm sure there'll be changes. I sort of look forward to them, but let's make sure you change the right things. Yeah, the FIA has said they want to reduce or contain the weight. Quite a big difference between those two things. So there's a desire to, but I don't think they've quite set their course now. But in terms of those midfield teams, which ones do you think are best placed to try and do what Ferrari did last year into this year and, and climb from that midfield pack towards the front? Obviously, McLaren and Alpine are at the front of it. McLaren have got their wind, new wind tunnel coming in various infrastructure projects they don't reckon it'll be until the 2024 car that they see their full potential similar thing for Aston Martin Alpine have also got work to do they say they're looking at ways to improve their wind tunnel and some of their infrastructure as well amusingly Alpine and McLaren both think that the other has the greater ultimate potential so they should be ahead which is quite amusing but um, those are the two cars that are sort of at the front of the queue but then you've got these other teams like Alfa Romeo coming on well even the minnow like Haas, Williams obviously has big ambitions. So who do you see as best placed on the best trajectory? Well, it is very difficult. I think, you know, probably if I was taking a sort of global view of it at the minute, uh, or, well, no, global view of it a couple of weeks ago, I would have said that Alpine were the ones that were probably heading in the right direction. But with Alonso leaving, going to Aston, um, and not knowing who's going to be their um, second driver, and I'm saying second driver loosely here, I'm not sure that's that's now fact. I think the the end of the day, Landon Norris and the McLaren is a very strong package 
for whatever reason, with Daniel Ricardo, uh, Ricardo, I mean, his struggles are, are immense relative to his career. Um, and, you know, whenever we look at it back at it, he did struggle in the Renault whenever he drove for, for them for the first year. Then he got his act together in the second year. That hasn't happened really at McLaren. Um, so there's there's room to think that, that McLaren, if they get the right guy, if, if the right guy replaces Ricardo, which I think we all think Piastri is going to do that, and I think he's he's definitely quick, but it'll be new, a bit of experience, but that'll allow Norris to stamp his authority on being team leader, which is not the wrong thing because we know he's quick enough. Um, so I think, you know, if out of those two, I would pick McLaren as, as possibly having the 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 parts of the, the parts of the jigsaw a reasonable set of parts for their jigsaw to go forward they're obviously going to get better as the new facility new wind tunnel comes into play but really the the what they've got now isn't isn't letting making them struggle um, and Alpine just you know they're they're in the midst of change they've they've just been got a punch in the last round that uh, that they weren't ready for and so they've got to regroup a little bit to be honest. Um, Aston Martin should move forward, but again, they're in the midst of this new factory, new people, new everything. And um, I, I, I worry about them a little bit in the fact that Lawrence Stroll gets a bit fed up with it all. Massive investment going on there. But, you know, no matter who you are, your pockets are only so deep. Um, and I don't think there's teams lined up there to, or people lined up there to buy teams that will be at the level of expense at Aston Martin. Or at. It's like buying a, a nice little house in a, a row of terraces and and spending massive money on renovating it. And you just, you know, you basically you just outpriced the, the terrace. So you'll never get your money back again. And that's what he's doing at the moment. You won't get your money back for a long, 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 long time. Um, but he's got the money to do that. So, uh, yeah, uh, again, it's, a, it's the same sort of thing with Alfa Romeo. You know, where are they going to? That's the question. We've asked this over quite a few years now with the cyber relationship. Where are they going to? Who Who is going to buy into them to make it to make it better? So out of all of the bunch, I think I would, I'd be looking and saying that uh, McLaren should be the ones that will move forward to give them the, the top three teams a little bit more of a hard time. Um, but joining them and actually racing with them in a, Every Sunday afternoon, I, I don't see anybody really doing that next year or the year after. Yeah, that's always the way of things in Formula One. It takes time, and then as that time passes, new regulations come in and reset everything. So that's just the way it is. Well, thanks very much, Gary, for your insight during the first series of the Race F1 Tech Podcast, brought to you by Ramco. There's not going to be very long at all to wait for the second series, which will start very soon in the autumn. So make sure you get your questions into podcasts at therace.com and stay with us for more from Gary. You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. 